2: From Morrissey to Modest Mouse, Johnny Marr always has been a serial collaborator. But now, he's a single man. I'm Jim Deergatis from WBEZ and Columbia College.
1: And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. We talk to Johnny Marr about the Smiths and his first solo album. And we review another collaboration between rappers Killer Mike and LP.
2: That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
0: Always get
3: what you want but if you try sometimes well you might find you get. What you need.
2: That of course is the Rolling Stones with you can't always get what you want and the Rolling Stones do. Greg always get what they want, Mm -hmm. and what they want is money, and they make a lot of it. They have, in five concerts alone on this tour, brought in more than $21 million. But the biggest news on the current Stones World Tour is that they recently played Hyde Park. Why that's important for fans of the Stones, the first time in 44 years that they played at that London landmark. In 1969, they played a huge free concert there to celebrate the life of Brian Jones, the founder of the band who had just died. Jagger read Shelley's poetry. They released Thousands of white butterflies, okay? Mm. It was quite an event. And they had something like 200,000 people there. This last Hyde Park concert is only 65,000. And, of course, those people had to pay. It was not free anymore. But, you know, you, you got a phone call recently from <laughs> Jagger before he played Chicago, and you were asking about the stones and money and this 50-and-counting tour. The one thing that I took
1: from that conversation, you have to read between the lines a lot with Jagger. He sometimes won't always come out and say exactly what he thinks. But my sense was that... He was kind of the wild card here. Everybody else wanted to do this tour for, for years, and Jagger was holding back because he wanted to make sure, A, that Keith Richards was ready to play. He was unsure about his health and about his commitment to being able to come out there and do a good show. And secondly, I'm wondering if he thinks the Stones have anything more to say at this point, which is a valid question.
2: I have that question, which is why I did not go to see them.
1: Well, those Settlers were pretty rote. I mean, I have to say I was disappointed in the fact that they didn't shake things up more, but I have to say for the performance that they gave... It was one of the better shows I've seen the Stones perform. This is the one in Chicago over the last couple decades. The Stones can still deliver the goods as a performance entity. We'll see if they do another tour next year. But all signs are pointing that they, they want to keep collecting $4 million paydays per night.
2: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Smith's fans may recognize those sounds as the guitar stylings of Johnny Marr. However, it's a work completely his own. The English musician, singer, and songwriter recently released his first solo album, The Messenger, and that was the title track. At 49, Marr has been making music for most of his life, but it's his first gig with the Smiths as guitar player, producer, and co-songwriter, along with Morrissey, that secured him a place in many fans' hearts, not to mention in rock history. Heck, Enemy just awarded him its Godlike Genius Award, and Prime Minister David Cameron admitted to having a personal crisis when Marr and Morrissey forbade him from having the Smiths as his number one favorite band. But let's put the Smiths' cultum aside for a minute, Jim. Mars has got a great
1: story to tell about his music career, from leaving his band during its heyday to linking up with these young rockers like Modest Mouse and The Cribs over the last few years. He's one of the most inventive and melodic guitarists of his generation. And he joined us recently in the studio. Johnny, welcome to the show.
4: Nice to be here. Nice to see you.
1: Solo record, The Messenger, first one of your career. It's amazing it took this long to get to the first solo record. In this record, Johnny, I think you're you're summing up a lot of what you're about. I mean, it's I hear some new things, I hear some stuff that references your older stuff.
4: Yeah, I, I hope uh, other people see it the same way. I, I agree, you know, I think um, one of the reasons why there are echoes in this record of things that I've done in the past was that I just didn't care to edit that out. Mm. David Bowie's a really great example of that, you know, I mean, to the extreme, really, you know, from record to record. And... and um, and I've done that myself too, And but on this record, I ignored that consideration. I wanted it to be a record that, that uh, the songs would be good to play live, so the tempos are pretty much up and the arrangements are tight, they, they don't go on for too long, and there's not too much studio illusion. consideration was that people who followed me over the years, fans, like they like it. And um, why I was keen to do that was actually just because I've been standing in front of them for the last five or six years, touring and touring and touring. Because I've been playing so much with Modest Mouse and with the Cribs and some other friends over the years, you know, and I played with Chic and a, a bunch of people recently. When I was in the studio, people's faces were in front of my eyes when my eyes closed and I think that's a good thing you know but it's a uh, quite a uh, not something that I always do
1: yeah and I think it's very identifiably guitar in a pop context those great riffs but they're concise pop songs I mean melodies and it seems like that was in your DNA yeah from the very start uh, that is
4: true luckily for me I got very serious about playing the guitar. It was a toy for me um, from being a little kid. I had toy guitars all the time, so I was very, very into it. But I got, you know, I started to actually play nine or ten at the time when I was buying 45s. And I loved both as much as each other. My development as a guitar player was exactly in sync with my obsession of buying these 40, pop 45s as a little kid that sound was what I wanted to make on the guitar. Basically I was a teeny bopper. Mm-hmm. I was into bubblegum music which luckily for me in the early 70s that was made on guitars. It was bands like The Sweet and uh, Susie Quattro, and, uh, and T-Rex was the big thing for me.
3: Wear a tall hat like a druid In the old days Wear a tall hat and a touch it
4: and I'm still a teeny bopper now. So when I got into that bit where guys, you know, you, you know, you then get into more serious guitar players. And my friends were really, you know, really keen to convert me to the ways of Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and yes and, and all of that. <laughs> i just couldn't get into it i appreciated it and i like actually i like steve Howe. i think he's great because uh you know he's going for a bit of chet atkins and then he goes for a bit of django reinhardt and stuff and, and I, he
2: can play in like 11 18th time <laughs> yeah
4: no i know i know but the music wasn't for me so uh this style that you mentioned of this pop guitar thing it's grown with me and it's part of who i was it started when i was about 10 or 11 and i'm still trying to get it get it right
2: I've read, Johnny, that you wrote your first song at age 10. Yeah, I did, yeah. What was your lyrical
4: concern? Oh, my, my, well, <laughs> do you know what? It's funny because the lyrics, obviously, they were so awful, but the lyrics were about um, leaving school, right? <laughs> what else? The, the lyrics were about getting away from school and getting out, and, you know, I'm pretty sure the highway was mentioned, you know. I mean, it was the 70s, <laughs> you know. I had no idea what a highway was then. And, um now i would use the word motorway of course you know but um it's funny really because uh, on the new record the song new town velocity is, is uh, got exactly the same sentiment you know? <laughs> it was the last song i wrote on this record i'm talking about now so you know the apple doesn't far, fall very far from the tree i guess
1: You were coming out of that era where the guitar was the iconic instrument, and you were talking about some of these harder rock bands wanting to make a statement as you know with, with these soloists, Richie Blackmore and Deep Purple yeah. and Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, but that never seemed to be a major concern for you. Well, the truth, actually, what I'm was because as a, as a
4: teenager, I was I sort of let off the leash very young. The mid-70s sort of classic rock thing, because I was old-headed and, and I hung out with a lot of older guys, that was like I was getting that second hand. But actually, in terms of pop culture, what was really for my generation was new wave music. Even punk was a little bit too early for me. I couldn't really get into a lot. I did, Well, I couldn't get into any of the punk gigs. But the bands that broke through after that, like uh, Blondie and Iggy Pop, who got to play in the theatres... You know, I was able to get into. We didn't. We don't have like this all ages thing. Really, is a bane. Is a, is a problem for me. I, I can't stand it. I hate that. I go out and play, and sometimes you just don't see any teenagers. It's over twenty one businesses, and we have it in the UK now. It's very deeply annoying. But for me, I used to sneak into a lot of shows. The, the mid-70s guitar rock thing was, was really for old, slightly older guys and I was hanging out and I was doing research and it, because I was a guitar obsessive, you know. I, I remember actually really being turned on to Jimi Hendrix and it just seemed like it was for, you know, as great as it was. It, it was too blues-based for me, really. I knew what I was about, you know, and it wasn't for me. But when New Wave exploded, that was a different matter. I could imagine my band, the band that I had, doing a version of Hanging on the Telephone. And then I found out very quickly that it was that it was a cover version by the Nerves. Mm-hmm. So then I knew about sort of slightly more garage rock music.
2: Well, before we get away from Guitar Heroes, I've read one that, that kind of surprised me, but then it made perfect sense. You've said in a few interviews that Burt Jantz really inspired you to be able to sit down and make a solo album. Now, he, he's this incredibly intricate folk stylist, yeah. legendary, but he's a musician's musician. You only ever hear musicians <laughs> drop that name. Right. How did you discover him? When did you discover him? Why did he inspire The Messenger?
4: Well, there was Burt Jantz, Nar Rogers from Chic, and uh, James Williamson from The Stooges. <laughs>
2: what a list what, yeah. what, can we just pause to yeah. say no yeah. other musician ever would give that list yes. yeah those
4: those were the only three guys that i really uh, and when i was younger i really liked rory gallagher and i thought he his ethos and the way he carried himself and uh, he was a killer player but those three guys stuck with me all the way i can hear it in my playing but but what happened was i moved to a neighborhood about to 11 years of age that was uh Just had loads of guitar players. Everybody around was a guitar player. It was in the suburbs in the mid uh, early 70s. I moved from the inner city, which was a very tough place, to the suburbs, to you know what Americans would call the projects. But there was a bunch of guitar players, and these guys, we all took ourselves so seriously. Billy Duffy from The Cult was one of them. He just got up and played with me at the Fillmore the first time we've ever ever played together we've known each other since 1975 since we were 13 or something Mm. billy was one of them there was a bunch of guys one guy billy was into mick ronson and pete townsend and paul kossoff Uh, another guy who was really fiercely talented he was very very into neil young we all had our specialist subjects Mm. you know so when people like Bill Nelson would come along or, you know, we, we just analyze these, the hell out of these guitar players, you know. <laughs> we were like this coterie or a, a salon. They allowed me to be part of it because I could play, the fact is, I could play Rebel Rebel without sticking my tongue out. Right? <laughs> they were all like, mm, mm, mm. and I just was like, oh, give, give that to me. So I, I remember that being a, a big moment for me because these older guys didn't want to let on that they thought I was good, but, you know, I was, and he was like, oh, right, this looked kind of easy. <gasps>
3: I love you so Don't you. Don't
4: you. Don't you. So anyway, because we took ourselves so seriously, one of these older guys who got into... Uh, he got into Neil Young and he went back through folk music. And on the first Buffalo Springfield record, there was a thanks to Bert Janch. So he took it upon himself to get into Bert Janch. As soon as I heard Bert, I was like, this is my guy, you know, I mean, this guy is... You know, the bar was really, really raised.
5: Amazing
4: thing about guitar players, they're very, very welcoming, you know. They like checking each other out. I do it now with new you know, young guys are around I made it my business to to really find out you know about Bernard Butler when he came on the scene mm-hmm. and I love Nick Zinner from the Yeah Yeahs. Yeah. you know guitar players are very good at getting together you know yeah so in my case now Rogers is now one of my you know a, a really dear friend you know yeah. and James Williamson and I have got a friendship
2: well you were in the studio with John's right watching him record or is that um,
4: yeah I played on a couple of his we made a record he made a record called uh, Crimson Moon and I have mm. played on a few songs with him yet
3: she looks up the water but she won't dive in. Crimson Moon tell me why
4: he died uh, a couple of years ago but uh, Bert and I got to be Good friends, and that, mm-hmm. that was an amazing thing, you know.
2: You had these heroes, they were formulated really early on, they guided your career. It seems like, in a lot of ways, you always were someone who knew exactly where you wanted to go. Now, there's 133 Smith's books on, on our shelves. Yeah. But the story goes, you're working as an assistant in a, in a clothing shop, and you meet Morrissey. And from the beginning, you guys knew what the label was going to look like, what the cover art, what songs you were going to write. Yeah. You had a plan. It just all came together the second time you got to, Is that true?
4: Yeah. And um, the last time we got together, Morrissey said to me, you know, all of that stuff, That remember that second meeting in... The two of us just went. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. It all happened. You yeah. know, thirty years later, it has struck. It did strike us as being quite a remarkable thing as well. I mean, the backstory to that though is is that before you know, I even formed the Smiths. A lot of those ideas that you're talking about, you know, were basically you know really really having a strong sense of what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it. I had you know, but back then they would you know, it was just dreams really. Mm. But they're very very specific. It was just an uncanny thing that when Morrissey and I got together, that someone else was into being on Rough Trade records yeah. with a navy blue label, you know, yeah. because <laughs> because it looked like the Decker label. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In my case, it was because of the Rolling Stones. In Morrissey's case, it was because of Billy Fury. I mean, that's just that one thing right there is kind of weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a very specific kind of thing. A lot of it is to do with the fact that you've, you know that you've got the same work ethic you're very, very, very into making your own look, mm. you know. Some of it I do believe is esoteric, some of it I do believe is fate, you know, whatever that is. A lot of it is luck, uh, but as I say, you know, we were both desperate enough to make our own luck.
1: going to continue talking with Johnny Marr about his stint in the Smiths, ending that band, going solo, and a whole lot more in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later, we're going to review the new hip-hop project from Killer Mike and LP.
2: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and you've been listening to our conversation with Johnny Marr, the celebrated guitar player who co-founded the Smiths and who went on to work with Bernard Sumner of New Order, Talking Heads, Billy Bragg, Modest Mouse, and many others. Now, after three decades in the music business, he's released his first solo album, The Messenger, and he'll be touring the U.S. this fall. But
1: for many fans, Mars always going to be remembered as one half of the most famous partnerships in rock history, with Morrissey in The Smiths. You're hearing a little bit of the band's first single from their self-titled debut album in 1984, the song's called What Difference Does It Make? And during our conversation, I talked to Johnny about my first impressions of the band in the early 80s. ¶¶ Perception over here, when we first heard those records, from my group of friends anyway, I remember the first cluster of songs, uh, singles Hand in Glove and This Charming Man, especially What Difference Does It Make, we're going, this is very sophisticated sounding music. I mean, these guitars are orchestrated. It's not like a rickety garage punk kind of thing. And then we were thinking, is this the producer or what's going on here? And it sounds like more and more that I'm gathering that you kind of had all these ideas in your head already.
4: I mean, all the things we've talked about, about my younger teenage life, add up to the fact that I had a really strong apprenticeship. A lot of it was because, you know, I left home so young and and, and I made it my business to be in bands with older guys who were quite accomplished. And in some of the instances, like you mentioned, what difference does it make? You know, I was lucky enough to work with John Porter, the Smiths producer. He produced some of our stuff and I produced a lot of the rest of it. I got very lucky because... I, I. John Porter was a great guitar player and a really good guitar producer, and he took what I, the raw stuff that I had, and what I, you know, what I was doing with demos and stuff, and he was going, "Yeah, we'll do that on a slide and uh, do that in a different tuning." And he taught me a hell of a lot.
5: Mm.
4: A big part of The Smiths coming out was the John Peel sessions as well, which were a really unusual thing back then. You were thrown into the BBC studios for a day. Uh, you got to get there really early and you had to get out really early and you had these really grumpy <laughs> notoriously grumpy engineers You're like get out and um, so you had to do it really quickly and they weren 't into like you indulging yourself and it was a, that was a really good training ground and you had to do four songs that sounded good enough to be broadcast I know.
1: And then you get something like how soon is now which I think is the riff that you are most identified with if people said, Okay name the one. That was like a special moment for you in terms of creating that? Yeah, as
4: soon as we'd done it, I remember I got in from the studio about 9, 10 a.m. i been worked on it with John Porter through the night. The band had laid it down in the day and then they quite rightly just left us to it. I remember waking up because it was winter, waking up and it was dark and uh, you know I slept through the day and I had this cassette by the side of my bed and I was like, what happened last night? Did I really do... I said, whoa, I think I did something really amazing, you know. <laughs> I don't know if everybody's going to like it, seriously, because it was a sideways step for the band. But the genesis of it, I had to write a new single, and the Smiths always did things in threes, which is a good number to do things in. I wrote, the A-side was, on the Friday, I was, everyone was kind of hanging around and going out shopping and buying sunglasses and stuff, and I was a little, you know, oh, you know I've got to get this song together, you know. So I sat in front of my portal studio, I had this idea for the song, William, It Was Really Nothing, so I wrote this really fast, super fast, short song. I was like, okay, that was good, that took me an hour or two to demo it. And then later on that evening, I went, okay, I've got to do B-side now, so I'll do something really sad and slow. as a contrast in waltz time. And because I was left on my own, I think I was feeling a little melancholic. And so I wrote the song It turned out to be, please, 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 let me get what I want. I was missing Manchester and the Irish thing and all that. So that was the vibe going on with that. So I had a fast one and a slow one. And then on the Saturday night, I was still on my own. Everyone's still like, you know, because I sent everybody away. I knew I'd get distracted. So I just rolled a big joint and kicked back and thought, OK, I'll do something different, very, very different. I'll do a long one with a groove, you know. I used to really like the Gun Club. I still really like the Gun Club. Yeah. They'd done a version of Run Through the Jungle by, by Credence.
3: I will run through the jungle I will run through the jungle I will run through the
4: jungle and I Truth is, I only knew the Gun Club's version. So I thought, oh, I'll do something in that kind of vibe with a sort of groove, you know. And I called it Swamp and it was just different from the other two, you know, it was cool. As was the case with the Smiths, you know, a couple of days after giving my partner the cassette, we booked the studio time and we went in and did it. We did the A side first and it sounded jolly good and then we did the B side and it was really beautiful and then we got to do the the Swamp one as a sort of off-the-cuff thing. I think maybe because it was off-the-cuff it gave me the freedom to sort of stretch out a little Mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. Luckily, by the time I got to do the track, because it was about half three, four in the morning, the slide part had... I wanted something a bit kind of more uh, paranoid, something that sounded like sort of what, like police sirens when I come to do the slide, and I'm pleased about that because it's uh, it offsets that swampy tremolo thing. That slide thing is very uptight and very paranoid, and I think I was really pleased with that. It was a good idea, I think.
2: it like when the collaboration was working in the Smiths what was it like when the fantastic rhythm section of Andy Rourke on bass and Mike Joyce on drums sat down and tore into a track and then Marcy added the Marcy to it
4: well it was magic you know me and Andy had been jamming together since we were like 15 or something 16 so we had a kind of a musical sort of telepathy what you start we used to lay the track down really quickly and then we would get the vocal down straight off and then me and Andy would work on the bass then, you know. And when I want to say that, he'd he already have a killer bass line. But I just kind of, as producer, would get him in the control room and we would make it a track, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm often asked about the bass lines, whether I wrote them or not. Of course I didn't write them. Andy wrote them. But he wrote them with his best mate, egging him on. So, no, there was a, you know, the chemistry between all four of us as a group was really good. When chemistry's really, really good, you recognise it. And to um, be honest, that's... One of the reasons why, after four or five days playing with Modest Mouse, I was like, okay, the chemistry in this, with these six people, including me, is a really good... To have been around good chemistry a number of times
1: it always struck me as an amazing decision that you're, you're young. I think you were 23 when the Smiths broke up yeah I mean you were playing sold out theater I mean, big big places 4500 seats 5000 seats yeah and you, you just knock it in the head and that's it I'm walking away from this mm. a few years later you're in electronic which is a completely different you know you're I guess you're early on working with computers and stuff like that. Yeah. Keep well, the,
2: the story of the next 25, 30 years is, yeah. is, is collaborations. You're always hungry. You're always searching. Yeah. You're always looking for other people to learn from and to bring things to.
4: Yeah.
1: Going from being in this band that is clearly on the ascent. With yeah. Everybody's saying the next step is they're going to be playing arenas in the United States. Yeah. So it seemed like everything was laid out in front of you. And you just said, okay, that's, that's it. We're done.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. It was a really, really big decision. And um if I knew of another twenty three year old who had the the instinct, the bravery, I guess, I don't want to sound immodest, but now I'm older, I can see that you know I had the sort of foresight and the instinct and the yeah and the balls and self-preservation to do it i I think I would be really quite impressed. Seriously, everything was sort of... You know, the band was getting bigger and bigger, but we'd made, like, 70-odd songs. And um, you can look at it as as saying, well, it would have got bigger, but, you know, I I don't think it would have, because I don't think the band would have survived another two weeks beyond, you know, the lifespan that we had, really. We just did everything that we were ever going to do musically, I think. But I also personally um was always into collaboration that's the thing you see what not everybody realizes is that i'd already collaborated with with people from the the very first opportunity i got you know on the first smith's record even you know i'd already was breaking out of just being one of the ramones or something you know (laughs) so i I joined the there who were my favorite band at that time and uh, and bernard sumner you know for me for me it's like wow like this how lucky am I you know
1: that's not a bad little leap from <laughs> going from one band to yeah. working with those two guys right
4: yeah you know
1: but but again you were sort of ahead of the curve because you know I'm thinking about a song like Get the Message from Electronic which was a big hit in the U.S. Dance music doesn't nearly, or electronic music doesn't nearly have the cachet in the U.S. that it did in yeah. in England and, in the U- and uh, Europe. So that was kind of a presaging what was going to happen years later. Yeah. It seemed very natural, and here's this big hit. It was a new area, but it, it, were you sort of aware that you were sort of doing something that was a little bit more groundbreaking, at least in terms of the way was it was tr- going to be? I proceed? was trying
4: to, yeah. I've always felt like one of my generation. There are guys and women who are my peers who are not famous or they're not musicians they might be doing different jobs or they might be doing no job but that I'm making music for them, I'm the guy you know, I'm their, I'm their guy who plays the guitar and sings and, and does stuff and we you know, I, I knew that there would be some people who would get it and some of them were Smiths fans and some of them wouldn't get it but I always made the assumption that there are people out there who get what I do so, you know, a lot of the story is like, oh, you know, band split up and blah, 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 all of that. But I just assumed that there was some cool people out there who were, who were on the same wavelength as me. And 30 years later, they, could, they still come out to see me, and it's, it's like a journey, you know.
2: Yeah. Johnny, I wanted to ask you about a great quote you gave The Guardian earlier this year about the Smiths, but also about where you fit in the firmament, I think, of, of music today. We invented indie as we still know it today. So yeah. now, I, I, and it's a great quote, but I want you to go deeper. What do you mean by indie, and how do you see it going back to those Smiths records?
4: When I said that, I mean, first off, I was being a bit cocky, right? Which, you know, sure, okay. sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and, and you but can disavow got, it if you like. Someone's got to do it. You know, I mean, I'm <laughs> someone's got to be cocky. Um, what I was saying was that everybody knows about punk rock, about the British punk rock scene, and, and the New York, Amer- and American punk scene, not just New York, because obviously Cleveland was a big part of it as well. And then there's post-punk, and... Aside from the actual music, that generation that I came out of stood for some things. I was kind of trying to say something for people who were my age, who left school in 1980, who were forming bands, you know, and there's not a lot of us around. I'm proud of the fact that aside from the records, a really big part of it was uh, about uh, sexual politics.
2: Well, yeah and and I you mean know. sexual politics acceptance anti-racism and yeah. as Morrissey reminded the world in the wake of Margaret Thatcher's death all oh, right I, a didn't, I didn't catch that <laughs> I didn't catch that but a but, certain sort of anti-classist attitude we yeah. are we are working class we are real people
4: yeah there were ethics and principles that we you know I don't want to get too po-faced about it but it wasn't called indie when the smiths started it just wasn't right. Right. and Jeff Travis who is the head of who is Rough Trade Records came into either a studio or a television studio one day when we were on somewhere, and he said to me, this is WH Smith's or Woolworth's, one of these chain stores, I've just ordered the new single, and it's the first independent record that's ever been ordered by the chain store. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, good, okay. Um, (laughs) Now I'm older, and I remember the look on his face, it was very, very significant. He was an adult, and he was telling me this, you know... And over 30 years, you know, all these genres come and go, comes and goes, all these names, you know, blah, 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 there's been Rave, Madchester, you know, Dubstep, blah, 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 blah. I come from a generation of musicians who, like, the idea of shouting some kind of gross comment at a girl standing up on stage playing the bass would be just, no one would have done that. Somewhere in the 90s, some irony nonsense happened where it became kind of ironical. Well, you know, I don't, I, I think, that was a step backwards, you know. But I just look back at the values of those bands that started out with the Smiths, and, and I'm really proud of it. I think I was just saying I'm really proud of the generation of bands that I came out of, yeah, because, of yeah. because of what we stood for. I think, you know, it's a very long answer I'm giving you, but I think what it was was that I was asked so many times about why I'm political, and I was thinking, alternative mu- musician, you should be asking other bands why they're not.
1: I wanted to bring it full circle because we were talking about this record, The Messenger, which... I think it's a, it's a terrific summing up in a lot of ways and also a, a platform to go forward but yeah. you said something the last time i talked to you you were saying something along the lines of i think people should sing the way they talk and that was kind of like in a, in the same way what, what you're saying about this kind of common man voice that the smiths seemed to embody in, in, in when, when they started to come up and yeah. it seems like you know here you are singing you know you're the vocalist on this record and it has that quality to it You're talking to peers. You're not talking to an audience that's vague and ephemeral. You're talking to people like yourself from from different generations, but. Yeah, there seems to be that relationship with, with the audience. Yeah, I think, I think that's
4: right. The shows that I go to, when I, you know, and I do go to shows, are in kind of banging clubs, you know, the music I like is, is kind of banging music. I don't really go to a lot of stadium shows, even, so, even though some of my friends play in those, kind of, you know, in those bands. So I don't imagine myself singing in that kind of environment. So I sing in a kind of a pretty clipped way that sounds good in a, in a club or in a little theatre. I'm not looking to sing some massive, big, sort of super croony, huge. <laughs> mm. you no, know, because some people, there are some bands around who do that very well. You know, they sing, they sing very big anthems. And but that's not the way I think, and it's not the way I live either. You know, I'll be very surprised if, if I ever look out off stage and I see twenty thousand lighters in the air. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Johnny, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on. Sunday. No
4: worries. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's been good chatting.
2: All of you Smiths and Johnny Marr fans out there, share your favorite moments at 888-859-1800. And who would you like to see this great collaborator work with next? The number is 888-859-1800. And coming up on Sound Opinions from WBZ Chicago and PRX, a review of Killer Mike and LP's new release, Run the Jewels. Then Greg drops a coin in the Desert Island Jukebox.
0: That paper and the mob says kill that witch. Right. This city get mad to the max. the way money buy to the high straight kids. Get a twin for half of the rain'. Right. Hot water from the roof to the basement. I'ma smoke to the planet e bases. Build the white flag at a zigzag, waving. All thin I'm smoking coffee. sibling on the bean like Boston. My young she'll find like not real. When she made that movie But when my wife in town, H Jack brown to stay up off me. Cause if they don't somebody get shot and they gon' buy a coffee. With the pull, of a pin, of grenade in the crowd that they feed and the soldier with options. i am a to fool for the wind, I've been made to be live, but he's never had
2: welcome back to sound opinions that is a song called run the jewels the title of the new collaboration between Killer Mike and LP. Kind of unclear, Greg, if it's the title of the album, the title of the collaboration, or Mm. both. These two guys last collaborated in 2012 on an album called Rap Music, R-A-P, Rebellious African People, is what those initials stood for, and it made our top ten lists that year. Both of us were big fans of that. It was a great year for the producer, LP, who also put out his first solo album in a long time, Cancer for Cure. Let me tell you a little bit about who these two guys are. Mike Render is a rapper who came up in the Atlanta scene, first made a big national impact as a guest on Outcast Stankonia album in 2000. A number of solo albums with a few hits here and there followed before he linked up with LP. Who is LP? El Producto or Jamie Moline is one of the most important underground producers in hip-hop in the last 15 or 20 years. Initially debuted in the early to mid-90s with a group called Company Flow, went on to become a solo artist sporadically releasing albums in between working with groups like Cannibal Ox, got a lot of attention for that, and a lot of other people, Black Blackalicious, Most Deaf, Dilated Peoples, forming the Deaf Jux, later Definitive Jux label, and, as I said, putting out these albums on occasion that really stretched the boundaries sonically of what hip-hop could be. It seems that Mike Render, Killer Mike, and Malene had so much fun working on that rap Music album in 2012 that they decided to get together again this one's called Run the Jewels it's a little bit different than the last record but we're going to play a track and come back and give our opinions on it this is Banana Clipper by Killer Mike and LP Aye. on Sound Aye. Opinions
0: I move with the elegance of an African elephant I presented the evidence eloquent as a president evident it's ever I deserve me a championship but before I banana clip I'm a chill so my man can rip little man against and with a heart of a Orphan. I got the words of a murderer, and I opt for distortion. You take a slice of my portion, I'll take a piece of your profit. I drive an illegal speed to keep an O.Z. in my pocket. We run the jewels in your town, a quarter pound on my person. I'm known for pounding the stage, I'm talking burning and cursing. Producer gave me a beat, said it's the beat of the year. I said LP didn't do it, so get the f*** out of here. You want a hang? bring your throat, I got stools in a rope. I'm a slang pole, a a land with a man's flow. A new addition to the art of the old code that's fully retarded and put a part in your bold Damn, Hey, we the villains, we this bad guys. Mercy me, merciless me, putting pain in they sad eyes. type of Skywalker talk me, the true Darth Vader. I hit your mom in 03, but eight So baby boy, you should tighten up and show some respect. Before i mail it on you, Joe, and put my arm on your neck. Or worse yet, be the reason your girl want a divorce. Be at a career with your kids saying, your fort. Will be.
1: That's Banana Clipper from Run the Jewels, the new collaboration between LP and Killer Mike. That track has one of the few cameo appearances on the record by another artist. That's Big Boy from uh, OutKast on the track as well. But it's primarily about these two guys. Jim, uh, you mentioned the two albums that they worked on last year came out within days of each other. Excellent albums, really serious of purpose, defined the year in hip-hop in many ways. Now I think this record was a way for them to just sort of blow off some steam. Get together, and let's bring it back old-school style. You know, it reminds me a lot of those early run DMC ultra magnetic MCs type of records from the 80s where you had these sort of tag team vocals and it's a lot about battle rhyming and and you know vanquishing those unseen rivals you know with how quick your wordplay can be now when i say they're blowing off steam it doesn't mean that they're blowing off this record i think they're taking this very intensely and seriously and i love to hear the contrast in, in the voices you know lp is very staccato and very rapid-fire in his rhyming style, whereas Killer Mike has just got that booming, deliberate delivery. And the contrast between the two styles really make it exciting just to listen to. They almost seem to be leapfrogging each other. They just can't wait to get into the battle and outdo each other during these songs. And then the songs come on top of each other you know it's kind of like bumper cars piling up so there's a breathless quality to it it ends with a very serious track both of the guys are looking back on their childhood and the sort of tense experiences that they had there in a track called a christmas miracle and i'm thinking is that pointing the way towards the next project but what I'm thinking as well is that this album sort of opens up the possibilities for these guys. And this is this is turning into one of the great collaborations in hip hop of the last couple of years. Run the Jewels is a buy it record.
2: You know, Greg, I'm I'm disappointed by this record. I think that LP is a genius, and the fat analog synth sounds and the things he does with the rhythms are just unmatched. But lyrically, they're really dropping the ball. So heavy were the concerns on rap music while still being funny and human and not preachy that they had set the bar really high and for this album to just be dominated with smack talk some of it violent and retrograde and sexist in the way that just too much lazy hip-hop is i don't want to tell you what they threatened to do to that poor poodle with the pistol okay you know what i mean i was like what you guys had so much better stuff to talk about and they do here at times ddfh do drugs blank hope is a message song about how idiotic it is to get sucked into that drug world that is ruining so many young lives today and then other songs are about pretty much nothing at all they sound great the voices sound great so for me even though this is a free release a gift to the fans it's a burn it record
0: i tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched You remember,
2: we were shipwrecked
3: together.
2: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip out to the Desert Island jukebox and play a song we can't live without. Greg is paragliding out to the island. What have you got for us, Mr. Cott?
1: Yeah, paragliding into my deep, dark past. You know, as a kid, you you start getting exposed to music, and there's a moment sometimes when that music hits you and just sort of dashes you against the rocks. And uh, that moment came when I heard this song for the first time. I, I remember exactly where I was. I was in my parents' kitchen, and it was the summertime, and the AM pop radio station in my town. I grew up in Syracuse, New York would run through the 500 greatest songs of all time, you know, just to kill time during the summer. And this song came on, and it hit me like a lightning bolt. I could not believe what I was hearing. It was the House of the Rising Sun by The Animals, uh, a 1964 number one hit for them. And it was a folk song for centuries. Obviously, it had been performed through the ages. Dave Von Rock had been performing in the Greenwich Village folk scene. Dylan recorded a version of it on his debut album. Nina Simone had done a version of it. But no one had done a version quite like what the Animals did out of England at the time. This was a really dark, foreboding mix of that traditional folk song and this garage rock drone that the band specialized in. I didn't know any of that stuff when I heard the song. All I remember is the mood, the atmosphere they were setting was unlike anything I'd ever heard. That Alan Price Vox Continental organ sort of droning in the background, those guitar chords, those arpeggiated guitar chords by Hilton Valentine, and most of all, the voice of Eric Burden. This House of the Rising Sun. What was that? You know, Uh, there's various interpretations of what the song means. It's a it's a song about a brothel. It's a song about a prison. All I'm hearing is that this guy with that desperate, will he's, he's, you know, the voice of experience. He's obviously a much older guy than me. And he's telling me, he's sending me a warning. He says, you know, don't follow me down this path because it's really tragic and it ends in a really bad way. You think, is this guy going to prison? Is he going to die? I mean, it's, it's, there are really (laughs) awful things going through my mind. I am it left me, you know, startled, confused, troubled. And I remember sitting there, my jaw Hanging down to the floor, waiting for it to come out again. My buddies were like, Come on, let's go play some baseball. No, I said, I'm going to sit here and wait for that song to be, get played again. And I, I sat there for hours, waiting for, not knowing how radio worked at the time. But I just remembered that was the moment when I go, Wow, music is this powerful force that can change your life. And my life changed right then. Here it is The House of the Rising Sun from the Animals on Sound Opinions. Yeah, it is.
2: House of the Rising Sun by The Animals, Greg Cotts, Desert Island Jukebox Pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, we're going to play some records you cannot live without going through our buried treasures. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. Our intern is Megan Murphy. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. Not a day goes by when he doesn't ask, how soon is hmm. now?
1: Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New
4: messages.
0: Hey, my name is Ross.
1: I'm calling from Philadelphia.
0: In regards to Malcolm Moore and talking about social issues through song, hell, it's about time people got back to that point. Wasn't that what most of the folk and protest singers of the early and mid to late 60s were doing anyway? Song is art, and art is for the
1: public to hear a perspective. Thank
5: you. But
3: your aim near any more.
5: I like
3: to see your eyes, but your eyes do not see
5: any longer.
0: Hi, this is Eric Svalgard calling from Wilmington, Delaware.
1: I really dislike your show. Mostly I listen just to bang my head on the steering wheel. But thanks for bringing Indians to my attention. Maybe because I'm a Dane, but this is the first new music on your show that didn't force me off the radio.
0: Unfortunately, you went next, right to discussing the new effort by Black Sabbath. With all the trashy filler albums released by aging rockers of my generations in the last 10 years, I think it's kind of nice to see a group turn to its roots and still sound good and be relevant to kids who like metal. Ozzy may not have the range he had at 18, but his voice still has the same strength in its mid-range as always. Thank you. Out of the gloom, I rise up from my tomb into impending doom. Now my body is my shrine. My
1: name is Doug Bell from Raleigh, North Carolina. I enjoyed your show on the, uh, the beeps. I wondered how you got through it without mentioning Soul Coughing, uh, not only in their style of uh, lyrics, but what I hear is a rejection of uh, consumerism and the middle class, so to speak, that the beats seem to be rebelling against, at least they were in my day. And uh add, to that I remember the Fugs when I was at Fort Dix in the mid-60s in the Army, and uh, we weren't supposed to listen to the radio stations with the Fugs because that was... Too much for our weak little minds, but we managed to listen to them anyways and enjoyed every bit of it. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.
0: Hi, guys. It's Jim Testa from New Jersey, and I just wanted to uh, congratulate you on the show on the beats and the beatnik influence in music. I thought that was a really interesting show. Uh, you asked at the end of it, are there any artists today who are keeping the beat going, keeping the uh, the beatnik uh, vibe alive? And two people came immediately to mind, Mike Watt, who if you've ever spoken to Mike, you know he talks just like a beatnik. Somebody once said the only thing new is you finding out about it, and this is where the Minutemen was. It was like the whole thing o- was open to us where you could actually make up your mind about things. And Peter Stample, you mentioned the Fugs and Thule Cooperberg. Uh, Peter Stamfel was a member of the Fugs at one point and the Holy Modal Rounders, and he's still making music. His new album with Jeffrey Lewis is very entertaining and very, very unique. So there are two people for you. Keep up the good work. I would Alan Kinsford out a ride a ball. I was
3: on the road when Carol went to death. Oh, my ride faster and harder than guessing again. And like my wife, I live in a garbage can. do 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 the
2: No more messages. do good with the yeah.